Attention cinematic fanatics, it is time to venture into a brief, but no doubt vital, excursion into a little side project that is within the umbrella, or within the capsule, of Slick Flick Pick. It's a little bit different. It's very important. It's very satisfying. It's very cathartic. This will branch into films within films. Some are worthy of the Slick Flick Pick cause. Some of them, but for a scene or two, are not necessarily worthy of Slick Flick Pick. But what these are are films that I have strategically selected for your oral pleasure and oral pleasure that deal with films that cause us to have an emotional reaction to something that we see, something that we hear, something illustrated through the visual medium of a cinematic experience or an emotional odyssey, something that is refreshing, something that is cleansing, something that is important for your day-to-day as you navigate through the trials and the travails of life that can be daunting, that can be exhilarating, that can be exhausting. I am not much of a comedic person, although I do have my share of moments that can only be described as profound hilarity, but this is not a selection of comedic moments. Rather, this is a choice selection of various scenes in films that I either love the film or I no doubt venerate the scene itself. Something that makes you cry. Something that makes you feel. Something that gives you a dose or a jolt of melancholy or sentimentality or something that is poignant and moving. I would like to say that there are hundreds, if not thousands of films or slick flicks that can engender such a raw and authentic emotion, such as teary eyes or peepers that are leaking, something like that. And it doesn't have to be a sad cry. It can be a cry of release. It can be a cry of realization. Maybe something strikes a chord in your personal life, or you're able to identify with a character in a way that can only be described as deeply and widely moving. But I like to try these new approaches. I like to sample different flavors of Kimohawk sessions. As I always said from the beginning, this was always intended to be an anthology series. And thus far, I have absolutely kept to that yoke and that creed and that motif. I have six separate books thus far in the Kimohawk Sessions library. This will not be technically a different book. It will really be like a subset of a book under Slick Flick Picks. But the purpose of this is to challenge myself, is to stimulate you, reward you, and keep things fascinating, keep things colorful, keep things imponderably gratifying. So I really sat down and thought about some films that really resonated emotionally and that had some sort of impact that you want to watch the film more than once so that you can extrapolate that same level of feeling. Because these films, although it is an expression of art and a very accomplished one, these speak to humans, human nature, human behavior, human relationships, human failures, humans vanquishing various plights. And so it was not easy, but I have ultimately identified 16. And you know, I just thought about something. When people say no further ado, I say fuck that. How about you get just the proper amount of ado and you don't even mention the lack of ado or the surplus of ado. You just get right to it and say Scooby-Doo ado. Although it does make me wonder if you start with with no further ado when you finish do you say something like with no procrastinated statement or no ps or we are devoid of a postscript because the ending is just the ending well then why did you take the time to let us know 
that you, you are officially finished with your preface, but when you end, you don't say, and this is the final end. This is the terminus. This is the last stop on this narrative train. No, no, you do not. These are questions that I have to sit with and ponder. And in that pondering, sometimes I am faced with some lunacy. Sometimes I am faced with those eureka moments where I jump out of the bathtub in my birthday suit and splash my water and my man business all throughout the streets of the local community. But it is in that moment of genius, I arrived at this new edition, which will be a four-part mini-series under the massive major heading of Slick Flick Pick. Howdy, Slick Tier Slippers. Slick Tier Slippers. I assure you, that will materialize the meaning of it in time. You comprise, constitute, and coalesce my throngs of both intelligent, emotional, and emotionally intelligent cinematic fanatic fans. And you are Legion. Is there a method to your leaking peepers? Or is that visual teary-eyed visage more situational and erratic? Some scenes and sequences in these slick flicks are so dramatic, climactic, emphatic, and traumatic, you have no choice but to bear these emotionally bludgeoning burdens traumatic. Feel these sensations thematic. Acknowledge those very same feelings are far from pragmatic. In fact, at times, problematic. From the painfully rheumatic to cathartic and ecstatic, it is matter over mind, or rather somatic. My singular passion for emotive films remains dogmatic. At times, enigmatic. But for all things cinematic, I am charismatic, and in my preparation for these well-thought-out aural presentations, both candidly passionate and wildly systematic. Have you ever felt the surge of salt water surface behind the crest of your peepers, eager to burst, release, escape, and glide down the contours of your countenance until it drips ever so gently, but repeatedly? off the pronounced end of your unblemished cheek, as it slides confidently, unapologetically, off the dimple of your chin, and down towards gravity, and the great unfucking known. What I fancy about a good goddamn cry, is there is candor to the wet confetti, no untruth, half-truth, or three-quarter lie. Eyes speak in truthful tongues, they are too overt, too unsubtle to be sly. I strongly urge you, my cinematic fanatics, my slick tear slippers, to partake in this legit shit truth. This unadulterated cry, let the salty fluid flow, and permit at least one sincere slick tear slip before you die. Greetings, cinematic fanatics and slick tear slippers. As previously outlined, articulated, and persuasively packaged through each aural pleasure of slick flick pick, Films fascinate us, they educate, they entertain, excite, and on rare but no doubt rewarding occasion, prompt us to feel, chuckle, occasionally chortle, question life, comfort our strife, force us to reflect and correct crooked intellect, whether taking a taxing load off or tacking on burdensome emotional heft. Sometimes, these flicks that we enjoy are so tenacious, telling, and true. There is nothing left to emote but a well-earned, unapologetic, 
goddamn cry. I don't know about you, but I experience a swath, experience an arrange, a spectrum of emotions. I know wrath. I know frustration, resentment. I also know exhaustion, and I know betrayal. I also know obedience, loyalty, love, consideration. I understand the concepts of happiness, delight, sublime rapture. Sometimes it's the simple things that I'm able to extract the most enjoyment from. Conversely, sometimes it's complex things that takes me a while to process to the full extent. And when I do come to some realization, it can sometimes cause me to get teary-eyed. In my life, I have not been an avid crier. It's not something that I really partake in very often. In fact, I have experienced loss, anger, pain, discomfort, stress, to extents that I know because I've seen it happen on others' faces. They have cried, not only privately, but in my proximity. That's not something that I'm in the habit of doing. In fact, the only time I can think of when I cried in front of others, it really falls under two categories. The first is when I was in the hospital and I was recovering but still very much in the apparatus of danger, as I was very ill in the hospital from bleomycin toxicity, various complications that came from cancer treatment, chemotherapy, a very risky surgery. I was intubated. I was put in a medically induced coma. When I was coming out of my coma for about a week, I was so fucked up on such a cocktail of drugs. I had no control over my emotions. I also was faced with grand sweeping gestures and kindness from people that I partially anticipated it from, some people that I fully anticipated it from, and others that I had absolutely zero fucking clue how much I meant to them in life, and how concerned and devastated they potentially would have been had I died. So for me, that was one rare example where my emotional barricade was not only scaled, but completely obliterated. But aside from that rare exception, there are go-to films that I can watch and I will get so swept up in the acting, the intensity, the emotion, the poignancy of it. And in that, I react. There have been some films throughout my life that always have that effect. And I like to watch them a couple times a year. I like to feel. I like to feel that expression of whatever that emotion manifests itself into by the time I've finished. So I highly recommend finding a handful of films that have that effect on you, that make you feel warm, that make you feel something, that just make you feel. Because in a way, even though these films are something that you can watch privately or in the company of trusted people, it's still something of a journey that you get to experience alone. Because if it's a movie that you remember watching, then you can feel that over and over again. In perpetuity, the following filmography, Nexus, draws an emotional link between a masterful film and its undying ability to stir, stoke, and provoke creeping tear reapers who reside behind our peepers. Of powerful, poignant, and profound flicks, I have selected 16. You will receive each slip dose in increments of four. And as each flick proves rather tearily slick, I'll shit-can the ado and light this orally, orally pleasing wick. The right slick flick pick can morph into a slick tear slip and gift you metaphorical cinematic wings make you feel as though you can fly. Others tear at your insides, break your heart, punch your gut, clutch your drawn breath, make you cry. The following Chemowalk Session broadcast will encompass four of my top 16 slick, teary-eye-inducing moments from Slick Flick Pick. Note some of these were previously discussed tangentially on an already posted episode. Others are yet to be dissected, 
in full, and posted. And some, while the specific scene is worth mentioning here, the film in its entirety is not worthy of a slick flick pick induction. There is a sweetness in sympathetic machinations and insincere emotional reactions and ramifications to poignant cinematic stimuli. I, as always, am your worthwhile cinephile and wide, teary-eyed, slick, tear-slip guide. Why did I select 16? Because of Sweet 16, of course, a girl's 16th birthday or 16th birthday party and a related coming-of-age party. So 16 has special significance. No, I am not a 16-year-old girl. But I do remember what it was like to be young. And I remember what it was like to be in that decidedly long and awkward coming-of-age period in my life. And it was those times where my emotions got the better of me more than they should have. You have the hormones, you got the testosterone, you got all the bullshit that comes with being a teenager. So 16 is a nice round figure, divisible by multiple numbers. I just think that 16 works. It works for this, it works for me, and so too can it work for you. Welcome Slick Tear Slippers to Slick Tear Slip Phase 1 from Slick Flick Picks to Slick Eye Slits. Celebrating Slick Tear Slip films that make us cry. Now we can, with depleted tear ducts, die. Flicks 1 through 4. The four films discussed today, speaking to the specific melancholy, inspirational, or moving moments, and beyond, are in chronological order. Backdraft, 1991. Saving Private Ryan, 1998. Blow, 2001. And Warrior, 2011. I guarantee you this. By the end of the first phase, your peepers will be phased. This is something of a melancholy slash sentimental journey for me, as it will force me to go back in time to when I saw these films and when these specific mentioned scenes really rolled over me and knocked me on my fucking ass. But I recommend these. Mostly I recommend the films as well, but I will delve into that in due course. Number one, and note that this numbering system does not extend with it some attachment to which one is better or which one you should see first. It's just the order in which I decided to pick them, and then for each phase, I decided to break it down into chronological order. We start with Backdraft, 1991. The scene is Kurt Russell's death at the end. He's a firefighter. He's a badass. He's something of an ambivalent character. He's complicated. He has an estranged wife and child. He's got a brother that he doesn't have the best relationship with by any stretch of any filmmaker's imagination. Ebert gave this three stars. It's a very good film. It had a lot of cutting-edge technology with pyrotechnics involving fire and firefighters fighting said fire. But the cast is extraordinary. You've got a fantastic Robert De Niro. You've got William Baldwin. You've got Kurt Russell in the main lead. You've got Scott Glenn, Donald Pleasance. Everybody is perfect, and they're illustration of the characters. This is up in Chicago. It's a solid brother action thriller suspense mystery dealing with fire and arsonist, memories of a father living up to a father's expectation, sibling rivalry. You get a couple of floozies on the side for good measure, but it is a solid film. And what really makes it so memorable is Kurt Russell's goddamn performance. He knocks it out of the park. He brings intensity, likability, charm, He's so powerful in so many scenes. Now, I've already performed a slick flick pick on a film called Dark Blue, and he has some very fantastic moments in that. But this is the film where he can bring slickness to your peepers. When he dies, he does so in the back of an ambulance. 
and he does not oversell it. It's a very good death in the sense that it's not something that lingers on too long. It doesn't happen too suddenly, like Gary Busey in Point Break, where he just sticks his tongue out. <laughs> I remember Brother Gambit and I analyzing that when we did Point Break, but it's a very good death. He finally has some common ground that he firmly establishes with his brother. First of all, Kurt Russell is abso-fucking-lutely amazing in every piece of film reel that he has graced us with. Here he is a flawed but heroic man suffering from regret, rage, a thrill-seeker addiction, and a conflicting sense of duty. To his ex-wife, a strange son, and imperfect but ultimately loyal brother, his death feels earned, and it feels, at the same time, immensely unfair. Watching him stare at his brother in the back of the ambulance is excruciating, and also a masterful end to that portion of that generation's story. His final words? He is only concerned about the reputation of the department. That's all he cares about. Great acting on Kurt's part, his face, it is a good, earned death. Who's your brother, Brian? Brotherhood. And he's tired of hearing the siren. That is such a random addition. It seems so real. It seems like something that was improv or something that was slipped in at the last moment, possibly not in the script. But asking about the siren and how annoying it is and to maybe turn it off, that's a reasonable request. But he was the heart of that film. And I remember watching it and getting choked up. I've seen it probably three or four times since the original viewing that I even remember seeing it. I've seen it more than that. But Kurt Russell is the one you center around. He's the one you rally around. And he's the one that fucking dies. And I remember... In that moment, thinking, Kurt Russell is a goddamn heavyweight, and he needs to win an Academy Award for something. He's always been underrated, underappreciated, undervalued, but not by me. I, Falsetto Prophet, your worthwhile cinephile, I salute you, Kurt Russell, and I really appreciate your performance and backdraft. Number two, Saving Private Ryan. I will be doing a slick flick pick on this, of course. It's definitely one of the best World War II films ever made. Of course, I remember the pornography film that would have been titled this had they made one that paralleled Saving Private Ryan, and that was to be titled Shaving Ryan's Privates. That's right, you heard it. Just because this is slick tear slip doesn't mean that we can't have moments of levity. 1998, Earn It, the Earn It scene. Ebert gave it four fucking stars. Now, in my slick flick pick analysis of this, I will go in much more detail. The thing about Saving Private Ryan is, it's just under a three-hour odyssey, and in that time, they firmly establish who these characters are, what their motivations are, their fears, their ambitions, and by the time they get to that final battle in Ramel, you feel like you know these people. You know them as though they are part of your own squad. It is a fantastic film, no doubt worthy of four stars from Ebert. And to be fair, and as they say in the white-collar corporate world, fully transparent with you, Fuck that. Why don't we just say candor? Okay, I'm going to be candid. There are multiple scenes in this film that really start the slow process of working on those tear ducts. There's a scene where Tom Hanks is having a quiet discussion with Tom Sizemore in this safe house church. Giovanni Ribisi has a monologue in that same church that's very poignant and gripping. You have a scene where Matt Damon is recounting one memory, the final memory that he has of his deceased brothers when they were all together. And just looking at Tom Hanks' face when he's telling him this story? Or how about the fact that Tom Hanks finally comes clean and reveals what his profession was back at home, thus spoiling the pool, but saving the lives of a couple of his soldiers who are about ready to blow each other's fucking heads off? 
But it's this scene here where Tom Hanks slowly dies on the bridge, and Matt Damon is officially faced with the reality of what has transpired in the last week and what the significance of that is moving forward. Oh, wham, bam, cam, keep moving forward, right? Well, they actually retreated in order to save the bridge, but that's neither here nor there. The point is that this film resonates in all the ways that you would want a patriotic American film about a colossal event in semi-contemporary American history to be. It's very affecting, it's very emotive, it's very powerful. Nothing can be said enough about the deep conviction that I have for how much this film qualifies, not only as a slick flick pick, but also as a slick tear slip. Tom Sizemore, Edward Burns, Tom Hanks. You may think the saddest moment is when Wade dies crying for his mama, but it is the quietest moments in this flick, the way Vin Diesel does not want to get blood on the letter, the way that Wade talks about intentionally feigning sleep to avoid talking with his mother when he was younger, the shaking of Tom Hanks' hand throughout. So when Tom Hanks whispers, earn it, to Private Ryan, it could have cut to black right there. And I have my own theories about what would have made this a perfect beginning and a perfect conclusion, but I'm not taking anything away today. Or have the camera pan into Senior Ryan's eyes and then focus into oblivion. What I did not need was him asking his wife or any family member if he had lived a good life. It's just an unnecessary coda. But if you change the end, you'd have to change the beginning. But this bridge scene, the insurmountable odds they faced, the conclusion, is masterful fucking filmmaking, acting, the stakes are incredibly high, and it is as much metaphorical as it is actual. There is some selection of review from Ebert. The turning point in this film comes, I think, when the squadron happens upon a German machine gun nest protecting a radar installation. It would be possible to go around it and avoid a confrontation. Indeed, that would be following orders. But they decide to attack the emplacement, and that is a form of protest. At risk to their lives, they are doing what they came to France to do, instead of what the top brass wants them to do. It's not just men shooting at one another. We understand the plan of the action, the ebb and flow, the improvisation, the relative positions of the soldiers. Finally, there is the human element. Hanks is a good choice as Captain Miller, a teacher who had survived experiences so unspeakable that he wonders if his wife will even recognize him. His hands tremble, he is on the brink of breakdown, but he does his best because that is his duty. All of the actors playing the men under him are effective, partly because Spielberg resists the temptation to make them zany characters. Matt Damon, as Private Ryan, exudes a different energy, because he has not been through the landing at Omaha Beach. As a paratrooper, he landed inland, and although he has seen action, he has not gazed into the inferno. I think Matt Damon is the right choice here. Not only does he have that all-American, I-own-a-Chick-fil-A franchise quarterback look, but he has a vulnerability. He has a believability. Tom Hanks is fucking perfect. Obviously, he would be nominated for an Academy Award. He would not win. And just everybody is in top form. Edward Burns, Tom Sizemore. Obviously, you're crying at the scene where Tom Hanks says, earn it as he dies. But there is a scene that is possibly even a forgotten or thrown away scene. It happens to be my favorite in the entire film. It's when Edward Burns gives the quiet nod to Matt Damon. I have never seen acceptance shown so deftly and so easily. With one nod of his head in the foxhole, you know all you need to know. Matt Damon is officially recognized as worthy of this journey that cost them two of their own. And there is an instant brotherhood, familiarity, companionship forming right then and there. Very powerful film. I love it. There's some great dialogue too. One of my favorite lines is also spoken by the great Edward Burns. 
Hey, asshole. Two of our guys already died trying to find you, alright? Of course, Matt Damon would be confused. What makes me special? Well, your mother lost three sons. That's what makes you special. And then, of course, you get the great speech from Tom Hanks. Mike, what's the pool on me up to right now? What is it? 300? Is that it? 300? I'm a school teacher. I teach English composition. And this is a brilliant and adroit step on his part to get his men to calm the fuck down. And then finally, in conclusion, with Tom Hanks in this particular soliloquy, Ryan, I don't care anything about Ryan. I don't care. I don't know anything about him. The man means nothing to me. It's just a name. But if going to Ramel and finding him so he can go home, if that earns me the right to get back to my wife, well, then that's my mission. I just know that every man I kill, the farther away from home I feel. You take a flick like this, where the stakes are high, if you give the writing and the script and the dialogue some sort of melodramatic undertones, it fucking kills it. If you put it in the hands of less than stellar actors, it's dead in the water, just like so many at Normandy. But this film is what happens when you get the right director with the right material, the right cast, and it all comes together seamlessly. Now about the Oscars and Saving Private Ryan, it won Best Cinematography, Director, Effects, Film Editing, Sound. It was nominated for many more, but it would not win Best Picture. It would not win Best Actor in a Leading Role. There was umbrage taken with this. I found an article, which I will discuss some portions of, how Saving Private Ryan's Best Picture loss changed the Oscars forever. More than just an upset, this film losing the Best Picture Oscar to Shakespeare and Love changed how Academy Awards are won by David Crow. I'm not going to fib you. Shakespeare in Love is a good movie. You have a great Judy Dench. You've got a top cast, Jeffrey Rush. It does not belong in the same league as Saving Private Ryan. Sad, but no less true. Saving Private Ryan's loss of the Best Picture Oscar in 1999 still hurts. It's a sentiment shared by many, and not just because of the disappointment they experienced when Shakespeare in Love took home that night's top prize. Yet when it comes to Steven Spielberg's seminal World War II epic, losing to an amusing romantic comedy, never before had there been an upset so fundamentally unexpected that it changed the way awards were won. And never before had a generally celebrated studio hit with frontrunner status run into the political machinations of Harvey Weinstein. The Oscars would never be the same. You're going to notice a certain pattern, you cinematic fanatics here, where the vast majority of the films where they really resonated with me emotionally, the vast majority, they came up short at award time. And you will start seeing that trend come to a firm but bitter reality as I proceed. With an intense commitment to realism and authenticity, the director's use of shaky, handheld photography and brutally unsentimental depictions of violence were shocking. The opening sequence, D-Day, the list goes on. And it was a massive blockbuster hit, 482 million worldwide. Come Oscar night, though, Spielberg picked up Best Director, but John Madden's Shakespeare in Love is what took home Best Picture. The process redefined what an Oscar movie looked like. They generally became smaller budgeted, less seen, and often greenlit, with Academy voters' preconceived tastes in mind. Shakespeare in Love beating Saving Private Ryan was the turning point that implemented this sea change. Get a load of this shit. Miramax started a whisper campaign saying everything good about SPR occurred within the first 15 to 20 minutes at Normandy. The rest was sentimental hokum. I think that is some horse shit. 
While the actual type of movies nominated for Best Picture appear to be gradually changing, so like Moonlight, Parasite, even to superhero movies like Black Panther and Joker now getting nods. By the way, I don't agree with that. I think some of that is retarded at best, but this is where we are. The generally accepted wisdom that Oscar movies and popular movies are mutually exclusive remains intact. I disagree with that year of the Oscars, and that will not die alone. There were many awards in many years where I fundamentally, at an elemental level, repudiated the Academy Awards findings. Saving Private Ryan, Shaving Ryan's Privates, whichever route you want to go, it is a fantastic viewing experience. And every time I see it, I feel something. And that's not nothing. Feeling something is not nothing. You slick tear slippers. Number three, Blow, 2001. The scene is Johnny Depp leaving a recording for his dad, an aging, dying Ray Liotta, to hear. Ebert gave it 2.5 stars. Little notation here. The appearance of Ray Liotta reminds us of Scorsese's Goodfellas, which took a much less important criminal and made him an immeasurably more interesting character. He becomes a fugitive, and it is his own mother who rats on him to the cops, even while his father is beaming at what might seem to be his success. What makes this film, and this is not a film I would ever do for Slick Flick Pick. It's a lot of bullshit, it's way too long, but there's something inherent in Johnny Depp's sadness and his sad, pathetic, fucked up life. And obviously Ray Liotta is a knockout performer, but there's something in their dynamic that's not oversold, it's not cliched, it's not something that you've seen 50 million times before in a standard father-son criminal film dynamic. No, this is something different. It elevates the material, and when Ray Liotta is listening to the recording by his son Georgie, that is something that has haunted me from the moment I saw it 20 years ago. It is an amazing scene, and it has no business being in a film that's that undeserving of it. Now, Blow is not an atrocious film, but I'm just saying it's not worthy of Slick Flick Pick. But it's these last lines. So this is Johnny Depp, who is a phenomenal actor. He is absolutely amazing. There's no way that you can equivocate that to the point of it becoming impossible to translate. He is an amazing actor. But there's just some dialogue here, and it's just so perfect. George. So in the end, was it worth it? Jesus Christ, how irreparably changed my life has become. It's always the last day of summer, and I've been left out in the cold, with no door to get back in. I'll grant you I've had more than my share of poignant moments. Life passes most people by while they're making grand plans for it. Okay, that line is actually from John Lennon. I remember that. Throughout my lifetime, I've left pieces of my heart here and there, and now there's almost not enough to stay alive. But I force a smile, knowing that my ambition far exceeded my talent. There are no white horses or pretty ladies at my door. You get just enough flashback in this movie to show George with his father, Fred Jung, and Ray Liotta is just so captivating here. He says, sometimes you're flush and sometimes you're bust. And when you're up, it's never as good as it seems. And when you're down, you never think you'll be up again. But life goes on. There's a really telling scene, and this is all building up to this most tearjerker moment that occurs at, like towards the end. But you have George and his father. He's already been amassing millions of dollars with this blow distribution. And he's telling his dad, his dad knows that he's accumulating his wealth through nefarious means or through illegal means, clandestine means, whatever. I'm really great at what I do, dad. I mean, I'm really great at what I do. Let me tell you something, George. You'd have been great at anything. There's about three moments in the film where his father sticks up for him. And that father-son dynamic it just really resonated with me. 
I, by no stretch of even the wildest inclination, have this type of relationship with my father. And you only get one father. I wish things could be different. I wish things had been different for two and a half decades. But you have what you have, and your parents are your parents. And much like some other people in life, you can't really pick them. You just have them. So I guess sometimes you just gotta play out a bad hand, like Bruce Willis says in Last Man Standing. Now, no awards were given out for the acting here in this film. And father-son relationships rarely get me. But sometimes they level me on my pale, white, Irish ass, as evidenced here. This is the final voiceover from Johnny Depp to his father. His father is too ill to move around, so his lawyer gets him a tape recorder, which he will leave this message for, and a beautifully modeling voiceover montage scene where it shows Johnny Depp talking, it shows his father listening at a later undetermined time in his garage, sitting in basically a lawn chair and listening to this recording. Hello, Dad. You know, I remember a lifetime ago. I was about three and a half feet tall, weighing all of 60 pounds, but every inch your son. Those Saturday mornings going to work with my dad, and we'd climb into that big green truck. I thought that truck was the biggest truck in the universe, Pop. I remember how important the job we did was. How if it weren't for us, people would freeze to death. I thought you were the strongest man in the world. And then, of course, there's a scene earlier in the film where the FBI agent is come to arrest George because his own mother alerted the feds to his presence. And the father, Ray Liotta, was pissed at the mom for doing this. And so he's referring to that now. When he had to get on his knees to put my boots on, so this is him talking to his dad, and the voiceover recording about this FBI agent who had already handcuffed Johnny Depp, so he has to put his boots on for him. You said, this is where you belong, you son of a bitch, putting on Georgie's boots. That was a good one, dad. That was really something. You remember that? And that time he told me that money wasn't real. Well, old man, I'm 42 years old, and I finally realize what you were trying to tell me so many years ago. I finally understand. You're the best, Dad. I just wish I could have done more for you. Wish we had more time. Anyway, and then of course they do this little Irish poem, story, song, whatever you want to call it. It's very well known, and it's mentioned a time or two before, but it's, May the wind always be at your back, and the sun always upon your face, and the winds of destiny to carry you aloft to dance with the stars. I love you, Dad. Love, George. That is how you leave a fucking message for a parent that you failed in life. There's a certain honesty, candor. There's a verisimilitude to that that you cannot fake. And then lastly, I find myself thinking about the scene where George's father tells him, you could have been great at anything, so why do this? This is from Reddit. Ray Liotta is the true heart of the movie Blow. It's a genuinely intriguing question. Could George have turned his hand to anything? Could he really have been a successful carpet salesman or sports physiotherapist, or marine biologist? Or was he always destined for a life of crime, always seeking the easy way to riches? We see it in the prologue at the beginning, that his father was an honest workaday blue-collar type, put his heart and soul into the business, but ended up losing it all and becoming a nobody. That actually kind of reminds me of A Bronx Tale, with Robert De Niro and Chaz Palminteri. In some ways, the movie is about the battle between what we say and what we do. George's father never said to his son, go and become a drug dealer. It beats work. But unfortunately, that's what his life story said. Johnny Depp, Ray Liotta, so subtle, music, the quote coming back around at the end, gets me every time. I highly recommend at least watching Blow, if for no other reason than to pay tribute to number three on this first phase of Slick Tear Slip. Finally, I promise four and you're going to get four. 
Warrior, 2011. The last fight between two very estranged brothers. Warrior is a 2011 American sports action film. It's a fantastic film, by the way. This will, of course, be a slick flick pick at a future time. Stars Tom Hardy, Joel Edgerton, and a fantastic Nick Nolte and Frank Grillo. This is one of my favorite sports movies of all time, and it is the best MMA film I've ever watched. Now, I do like, for example, this is the difference between a good film and a popcorn film. Never back down. I enjoy. And it does have some very profound, stupendous moments. But this film is the wise dragon to the spontaneous tiger that is Never Back Down. The song is playing at the end as they're fighting about today by the National. The film got good reviews. Warrior relies on many of the cliches that critics of the genre love to mock, and it transcends them with gripping action, powerful acting, and heart. Some Rotten Tomatoes. On Metacritic, the film has a weighted average of 71 out of 100. Highly praised the actor's performances, especially Tom Hardy's, as convincingly real and sensational. That's Bruce Deones of The New Yorker. He further complimented the film as cathartic and winning. I can tell you, Frank Grillo has some really standout moments here. Roger Ebert gave the film 3 out of 4. This is a rare fight movie in which we don't want to see either fighter lose. Nick Nolte was nominated for a Best Supporting Actor at the Academy Awards for his performance and comes out swinging in this flawed but fiercely moving family drama. That's Peter Travers of Rolling Stones. It is a fantastic film, and it has a lot of grit, a lot of determination, a lot of family value discussion, a lot of tragedy, pain, grief, and loss. But everything culminates at the end in an extremely cathartic manner. You've got these two brothers, they're fighting for very different reasons, but you understand completely where they're coming from. There's one exchange that they have together before they fight, and by that time in the film, you're fully fucking invested. But when they're fighting, Joel Egerton basically has to dislocate at least one, if not two, of Tom Hardy's shoulders. He's begging him to give in and to tap out, and he just won't. When you have two characters that are so stubborn and tough and masculine, sometimes it takes a colossal shift, some sort of tectonic activity, to really knock that loose. And we get that in this film. And we know, as they're shuffling off the stage after the fight, two about today by the national which is the perfect song by the way for this moment you know that things will never be the same between these two estranged brothers and nick nolte will never be the same either he finally got to see his two sons come together and leave gracefully so it's a very powerful film it's very moving and it has a certain rewatchability i've seen this thing about seven or eight times i remember when i was handling claims i went on a ride along with this guy i can't remember his name but he said this was like his favorite movie. He owned it on Blu-ray at the time. He said every time he watches it, he cries like a little bitch. That's basically his words. And I totally get what he means. And I understand the clever comment. Because this film has an effect. And it is uncompromising. And it is astonishing. I love Warrior. And I could watch it 15 more times at least before I pass on. So Ebert said, Once this premise is clear, it is as certain as night follows day that Brendan and Tommy will meet in the ring. That accounts for the three climactic rounds, because each has to advance through a semifinal. What is intriguing is that Warrior doesn't have a favorite. We understand and like both characters. So does the film. Director and co-writer Gavin O'Connor arrives at the standoff by playing fair. Both have motives. They are long estranged after an unhappy split in childhood. In some ways, they hate each other. 
Mixed martial arts is a sport that perplexes me. I never quite understand how any of these fighters stay conscious for even one round. Well, I can tell you, Ebert, that I have seen my share of UFC fights, and that is so true. Anybody at this stage that thinks that UFC is choreographed or that it's fake is lying out their devil ass. Hitting, butting, kicking, tripping, and slamming are all part of the game. He says, I may be naive, but it all looks real to me. This is a rare fight movie in which we don't want to see either fighter lose. That brings such complexity to the final showdown that hardly anything could top it. But something does, and Warrior earns it. And if you like Warrior, I highly recommend the TV show called Kingdom with Frank Grillo. Frank Grillo is that unsuspecting horse that is now taking all of the B-action movie praise. He and the right material, whether it's Purge Anarchy, whether it's Warrior, he can really dish out a fine performance. And I recognized talent in him 15 years ago, and now that's really coming to fruition. Now, what would this be without some contenders? Because I sat and I thought long and hard, and there's no shortage of films that can invoke a teary-eyed surprise. But here, I really had to dissect which ones are worthy of formal induction and which ones are worthy of an honorable mention. So here are some contenders. The film Heat, directed by Michael Mann. It will be a slick flick pick. Told you I was never going back. This is told to Vincent Hanna. Robert De Niro is dying. This beautiful song by Moby is playing. An illustrious end to an inappropriate career. Slick flick pick number 70. We'll speak more to this. But I felt like that was a scene that was extraordinarily powerful, but it never made me cry. And that is why is it a contender? The handshake at the end of LA Confidential between two Aussies, Russell Crowe and Guy Pierce. Exley and white makeup in fine, masculinely exposed fashion. Slick flick pick number 50 already spoke to this. So basically, understand that I love LA Confidential. It's my favorite film ever. And I do feel something in that moment. But it does not make me cry. So that is why it is unworthy of an official selection. But LA Confidential, it's a very moving film. It's a very legendary film. I think that it is worthy of watch, rewatch, and perpetuity for all time. Lastly, we have the third contender, Apollo 13. We have Ed Harris, who plays the white team flight director, Gene Kranz. But speaking of Oscar snobs and robs, in all these films that I've mentioned today, before we finish, I can tell you one simple fact. Backdraft. No nomination for actor for Kurt Russell. Save in Private Ryan, Tom Hanks does not win the Academy Award. He's simply nominated. I think that Matt Damon, possibly a few others, could have received some sort of Golden Globe, some sort of Emmy recognition, but whatever. The point is, Blow, nothing for acting, not even close. Warrior, the only mention was an Academy Award nomination for Nick Nolte, who truly was a warrior in Warrior. He was amazing, but that's not the point. Heat, no nominations for acting, no recognition. LA Confidential, Kim Basinger walks away with the Oscar not even mentioning Guy Pierce or Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe truly was the heart and soul of that movie. Whatever the fuck. But Apollo 13 is no different. Ed Harris is the best performance in Apollo 13. Ed Harris is also an iconic and superlative actor. He's fantastic in everything. Movie, TV show. I've been following him for 30 years at least. He was nominated for best actor in a supporting role for Apollo 13. Who did he lose to? Well, he lost to Kevin Spacey for The Usual Suspects. This was a tough year. You have Tim Roth as Rob Roy villain Archibald Cunningham. Fantastic performance. Brad Pitt, 
Twelve Monkeys, fantastic performance, Ed Harris, and James Cromwell and Babe, which I've actually never seen that, so I don't understand. That's a tough year. I mean, you've got Kevin Spacey in his prime, Tim Roth, Brad Pitt, and Ed Harris. So I'm okay with the way it played out. I would have been fine if Tim Roth won. I would have been fine if Brad Pitt won. The point is that he lost fair and square to Kevin Spacey and The Usual Suspects, but he did not win. But he was the guy. That scene, the scene that I'm talking about for this contender, is when Mission Control, they're waiting breathlessly for this Apollo 13 spacecraft to return. He can barely contain his relief and his exuberance, realizing that the three guys, the three astronauts, are alive and well. Ed Harris is the reason you watch Apollo 13, and there is no dearth of reasons to watch it. But I was so moved by the real story of Gene Kranz, I found a little bit of information here. We Must Never Fail, Gene Kranz, Apollo 13 in the Future, by Jeff Faust. Gene Kranz recalls the teamwork required in Mission Control in order to rescue Apollo 13 during an address at the National Air and Space Museum. Houston, we have a problem that has been added to our cultural vocabulary, and failure is not an option. While these catchphrases have been used and abused to the point of becoming banal, they are both historically accurate as well as symbolic of the attitudes that make the Apollo program in general a success. Those people who refuse to accept failure. I'm paraphrasing here. Gene Kranz, the legendary flight controller who uttered failure is not an option, touched on how he and his fellow flight controllers salvaged a mission. Kranz in his speech emphasized the importance of teamwork as an essential element in mission control. There, we learn the difference between I and we, component of the team, he said, because when the time comes, we need our people to step forward, take the lead, make their contribution, and when they're through, return to the role as a member of the team. That's a far cry from what was it? Kobe Bryant? There is no I in team. And then this little dipshit runs up there and writes, but there is an I in win. Now, I can't remember exactly if it was Kobe Bryant. I think it was. Either way, that's not the point. The point, sharp as Braveheart's sword here, Braveheart's broadsword, the reason I bring up Braveheart is because this year, the Academy Awards, when Apollo 13 was nominated, Apollo 13 lost Best Picture to Braveheart, which is fine, you know, whatever. But I liked Apollo 13. I actually liked Tom Hanks, Bill Paxton, Kevin Bacon, but really the two standout performances were Ed Harris and Gary Sinise. Back to this article. Kranz added that mission controllers develop chemistry as a team. It amplifies the individual's talents as well as the team's talent. Chemistry leads to communication that is virtually intuitive because we must know when the person next to us needs help. I recognize that this article and this episode and some of my episodes, I do read some information. I apologize profusely and immediately as I recognize what it sounds like to hear somebody reading. But I assure you, I do my best to make it fun, to make it wacky, and to make it whimsical. But this is information that is so applicable to just about every facet of life. And that is why I take the time with it. He says chemistry leads to communication that is virtually intuitive. I say that again for emphasis. We wrote two more words into our vocabulary and mission control. Tough and competent. Tough because we will never again shirk from our responsibilities because we're forever accountable for what we do or what we fail to do. Competent because we will never again take anything for granted. We will never stop learning. It's so strange uncanny, surreal. You'll be going down this investigative donkey hole and you will come upon information that you expected and is par for the fucking course. But then you will find these little treasure troves of unexpected delights along the way. This article, which I'm reading to you now, this is one of them and I very much appreciate it. 
Kranz, for one, is a big believer in a return to human exploration of space. I believe we are going to move into a new era of American space leadership, he said during a question and answer session. We have the young people, the technologies, we have the know-how. We have to solve a few problems associated with the economic base of our country, and we need to develop a long-term commitment. Remember Neil Armstrong's That's One Small Step for Man? Anybody that heard that and that believed that he was actually on the moon at the time, anybody that heard that and did not experience a sensation rivaling a slick tear slip is inhuman. They're incalculably inhuman in my eyes. I love Apollo 13, but it just did not have the effect as far as me bawling like a goddamn baby whose peppermint was gifted to me and then removed as an Indian giver. I know you're not allowed to say Indian giver anymore, and that's why I'm saying it. Because rules were meant to be fractured. When our beloved character, final girl or guy, has lost, won, or tied, been beaten, bent, or otherwise broken inside, if they've either unexpectedly or in a long-foretold and choreographed way died, we have exhausted our emotions, our last truthful, touching, telling tears cried, our tear ducts and cheeks both cleaned and dried, but in this cathartic release and from this emotional joyride, we feel renewed, rejuvenated, and alive inside. We loyally remained by our favorite actor's side. With their cathartic cause, we have allied. Though that took on us a toll, we are spent and tried. We were honest with our own thoughts, inclinations, preferences. We never, to ourselves, lied. And, along with the cleansing release of salty tears, our time was well applied. In a new cinematic catharsis, we can seek sharp-eyed, and in our loved mates, cats, compadres, and kin, we can confide in them. That which awes, stupefies, floors, yet never bores us. With peepers, freshly lubricated pride. Dry your eyes for your next aural surprise with Slick Tear Slip, Phase 2, from Slick Flick Picks to Slick Eye Slits, celebrating Slick Tear Slip films that make us cry. Now we can, with the pleated tear ducts, die. Tear Slip Scenes 5-8, through eight, the films that will be discussed, the Shawshank Redemption, American History X, Road to Perdition, and Moneyball. It just occurred to me that I have a film with redemption and perdition. That is rather extraordinary. My advice to you, parting advice that is, think of something that you behold with a ferocious intensity. Think of an animal, a friend, a loved one, colleague, someone that delivers your fucking smut material. I don't care. But think of somebody that you would be devastated by their loss. Think about that from time to time, and it'll make you feel something for them. It'll make you appreciate them on levels you had not even anticipated. I do that about once a week with Othello. When Othello passes away, it is going to royally fuck me up for a good long time, possibly in some ways the rest of my existence. But as I think about Othello dead, it really encourages me to enjoy the time that he's here, for today, for the next week, and for every other day that he and I get to share time, space, and companionship. I love you, Othello, and I love these films. Your worthwhile cinephile and wide, teary-eyed, slick, tear-slip guide, Falsetto Prophet. Wipe your eyes for the next surprise. Bye, you cinematic fanatics, and you slick, tear-slippers.